Good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon and welcome. Uh, obviously, lunch is going fantastically. Uh, part of me is even sorry to, to interrupt. The conversation and energy level is just fantastic in the room today. Uh, my name is Joseph Lowe, President of Canadian Club Toronto, and I am delighted to play the role of your host today. Uh, special welcome to those of you who are joining us online as well. Thanks to our partners at Ben Valkenberg Communications and LiveMeeting.ca. First off, I'd like to thank PwC for its generous sponsorship and support of our event today. We're also grateful to the Canadian Bankers Association for their continuing support through our 125th season as our season sponsor. I'd also like to acknowledge Canada's Forest Trust, whose commitment to acting on climate change is making a real difference. Our partnership with the Trust is reducing the carbon footprint of our entire season of club events. And finally, a shout out and welcome to uh, our future private equity titans in the corner, our students from the Smith School of Business's Masters of Finance program. Why don't you guys stand and be acknowledged? It's great, it's great to have you here as a part of uh, the conversation and maybe adding to it as well in the Q&A period. Uh, members and guests, what would you like to hear from our panelists today? After a decade of free money, and heady valuations, veritable catnip for private investors. I'm curious how they are reading the challenges and opportunities that lie ahead. So you'll find Q&A cards at your tables. Feel free, use them liberally, scribble on them, and we'll get them uh, to our uh, moderator. And for those of you joining us online, hit the submit a question button on the right-hand side of the screen as always, and we'll get your questions that way as well. And now to introduce our stellar panel, please join me in welcoming to the stage my good friend Mike Shea, partner, national private equity and pension fund leader at PwC. Mike, the Canadian Club podium is yours. That's great. Thank you very much, Joe. And good afternoon, everyone. On behalf of PwC Canada, we are delighted to host today's session which is intended to provide a behind-the-curtain outlook at private equity in Canada. Now, we're all familiar with the headwinds in global markets. As a global asset class, private equity is navigating through a myriad of uh, macroeconomic issues, such as inflation, increased interest rates, and supply chain disruptions, all of which are impacting PE from fundraising, deal origination, execution, right through to value creation and exit. The PE sector in Canada faces many of these same challenges. With a few country-specific factors, such as the relative size and scale of our companies, our relative sector focus, but also the structure of our capital markets and banking system, we think it's worthwhile to take a little bit closer of a look at home. Now, I've been lucky enough to get to know our panel over the past few years, and I know that they're well positioned to provide diverse perspectives and on the outlook for private equity in Canada across various transaction size, sectors, and strategies. Now introducing our panelists. First off, we have Thekla Sweeney. Thekla is a partner and co-founder at Elfie Capital, a private investment firm formed in August 2022. Prior to founding Elfie, Thekla was a partner at Birch Hill Equity Partners, focused on investments in the consumer, healthcare, and telecom industries. Next, we have Dave Aiken, a managing partner in Brookfield's private equity group. He is responsible for overseeing Brookfield's long-term equity strategy. He has held several roles across Brookfield private equity, including Head of LATAM and Chief Investment Officer for the industrial segments. And finally, we have Justin Catalano, a Managing Director and Group Head of Fengate Private Equity and a member of the Executive Team for Fengate Asset Management. As Group Head, 
Justin has responsibility and oversight for the fund's private equity investment strategy, operations, and investor relations. And our moderator, Andrea Mandel-Campbell. Andrea is a member of the advisory board for Crown Realty Partners and is an operating advisor with Virtu Capital. She sits on the board of directors of the Ontario Centre of Innovation and the Canadian Club of Toronto. Ladies and gentlemen, a round of applause for our panellists. interesting discussion at a really interesting time and um, I think we're really lucky to have um, three uh, really smart people here from coming from different uh, places within the PE ecosystem and I'm thinking maybe we should start our conversation with kind of a higher kind of outlook uh, and then we can kind of work our way down to some more specifics but um, I'd like to get a sense from all three of you in terms of um, the outlook and where and from where you sit and what you are looking to achieve over the next you know near term uh, 12 or 24 months and maybe Thekla starting with you um, you and your partner have recently launched a new fund and I'd love to get a sense from you around what fundraising is like these days and where you're seeing opportunities such an easy question mm -hmm. uh, thanks everyone for coming um, I think to start, I mean, fundraising, I think, is always hard. Uh, I don't think anybody who's been fundraising in the past would ever say that it's, it's an easy road. Um, I think one of the most important things with fundraising is understanding which LPs are in your addressable market. And so, you know, what's your, what's your strategy and, you know, for whom is that going to resonate? Um, you know, Andrew and I uh, have started Alfie. We are technically an emerging manager, an emerging manager is a fund that is raising its first fund or its, or its second fund. It's interesting at my age being emerging of anything, but there we have. Um, <clears throat> and so I'd say that there's some particularly unique attri attributes or, or challenges, I guess, if you will, with fundraising for an emerging manager. Um, you know, first and foremost is identifying those groups that actually have an emerging manager program and or for whom you know, the bite size of what they're looking to invest is, is, is a match. Uh, there, are, there are lots of funds that have programs, especially in the U.S., and so making sure that you've sort of scanned the market um, for that. I think the other thing with an emerging manager is, you know, addressing the concern that an LP has as an emerging manager, which is, you know, maybe you're new to private equity, maybe you're investing in a different part of the market, or perhaps you're just doing it in a new context. And so, you know, understanding how to translate what you've done before in terms of how that's going to generate success going forward. Um, I'd say the two other themes would be, you know, there's a lot of conversation about the denominator effect for sure, which is obviously, you know, as public market performance, inflation, what have you, there's lots of LPs looking to rebalance their portfolio. And if you've already made commitments, the only place you can really rebalance is on new commitments. Um, you know, that's less of a factor for us because the kinds of folks that we're targeting, you know, would have smaller programs or they're sort of emerging groups that are looking to grow um, their exposure to the asset class. But I think one of the most exciting things in fundraising is what they call, what they've been calling, I guess, the democratization of, of private equity. 
which is really the access by high net worth individuals into the asset class. And so that would be either through direct investments or through an asset manager or some sort of structure that allows them to sort of come in. And so I think that's very exciting and certainly very applicable for, for emerging managers. But just to follow up on that, have you noticed any change, uh, the questions you're being asked, the kind of sentiment, like how much is the current you know, situation macroeconomically impacting or affecting you know, what LPs are asking you or what they're willing to do or the risk they're willing to take? It's hard to compare because I was coming from a large established fund where you know, I wasn't sort of the lead fundraiser, so I can't kind of comment on that specifically. You know, everyone opens up with the conversation like, oh, it's a hard market, which is, you know, not exactly <laughs> exciting to hear when you're sort of having an initial conversation. But that being said, you know, if you've got the right team and the right strategy and you're matched against the appropriate LP, you know, there is capital to deploy um, and you just got to make sure that you're, you know, you're focused on, on, on the relationships and the conversations that are going to convert. Okay, Dev, David, you um, obviously you oversee a pretty significant uh, a pool of, uh, of, of capital here uh, in Canada and I think internationally, um, and you are also raising a fund. Um, and I'd love to get a sense from, from you about how you are thinking about risk these days because there's a lot of risk. The list is from everything from inflation and interest rates to recession to the banking sector to geopolitical risk. So how is, that, how is that informing your strategy and what are the kind of the markets and the assets that you are thinking, that you're looking at and, and thinking are, could you sure. Well, um, <clears throat> look, I feel a lot better today than I did three years ago at this point in time. Okay. Um, and I think the, the risks that we have that are more prominent today are a lot easier to understand than you know, three years ago, we were at the beginning stages of COVID, and there was really no precedent for that type of economic environment. Um, where, whereas today, you know, inflation is certainly top of mind. Interest rates are certainly top of mind. Um, there's some geopolitical stuff that is um, more prominent. But look, our, our view would be that these risks are always around. They might just be more um, prominent today than, than they, uh, they have been in in periods in the past, but we've had the same strategy for 15 or 20 years. We just try to go and buy great businesses. We're gonna to continue to try and go and buy great businesses that have the durability to withstand any sort of um, oscillations within macro factors over a long period of time. And we focus on buying businesses that generate cash flow today. And uh, we take a lot of comfort in the fact that those businesses are generating cash today. We don't have to be as reliant on forecasting what's going to happen three, four, five years down the road because we're getting some of that return today. Hmm. Okay. Justin, um, I'd love to also get a sense of um, how current conditions are, you know, have influenced your outlook as well and specifically around, you know, how you think around things like timing of your exits, refinancing, value creation, is that, has, has there been any changes there or difference of how you're approaching things? I wouldn't say there's a change in how we're approaching things. I would just say, short answer is of course it has implications, mm -hmm. right? People's capacity to pay today is different than it was a year ago. And so that just has to be acknowledged. But I mean, similar to what David mentioned, you know, if you build a business, if you go in with the intention to partner with great people and build a business that is driving sustainable value, 
not just building to an exit, which in my view has more factors that you can't control than you do, uh, then you can weather a bunch of storms. You're building something that has a lot more fundamental value to it than you know, basing off of a forecast that was driven by a lot of cheap capital, fueling growth. And our view is not all growth is created equal. So we've come into this, every investment we go into, we have the view to build sustainable value so we can be rewarded when it comes time to exit that business. And we think someone will pay for that value we created. In terms of timing that, um, very hard, right? I, our, our view at our firm is if you do a good job, exits will find you. It's very hard to time them. Every model is four to seven years. It feels really great, it hits your fund targets, but the reality is if you build a good business that is winning its share of market and gaining strength in the business, gaining strength in the market, people will pay for that. In terms of value creation, uh, short answer again is yes. Like we go in with these perfectly tailored value creation plans, right? Of everything we're gonna do kind of month by month and then the world changes. And what used to be initiatives we were driving growth from become problem solving initiatives. And that's really tough because you're spending resources and now addressing problems. Um, so in that vein, I would say the silver lining of taking a valuation can and kind of like starting to compress it and add more problems to it is it gives us a chance to really build trust with our management teams, right? How you show up in a partner in that moment where you're working with them to solution problems allows you to capitalize on the opportunities that this market also provides. Because even though this market is challenging for the headwinds we all know exist, there's also opportunities in this market. So we're constantly changing our value creation plans to deal with issues, but we're not taking away the focus or the ethos of building a great business. Just causes us to focus our initiatives a little differently. Okay. I want to get into a bit more detail on that, but first, David, I wanted to talk to you a bit about this as well, because one of the things I think Justin is kind of alluding to is some of the best companies and investments are made during down cycles. Um, so I'd love for you to talk to us a little bit about how you're thinking about allocating capital, why now is a good time to allocate capital, and what are some of the markets and, 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 and assets that you're, you're actually looking at? you think of as attractive. Sure, so maybe I'll, I'll start by just a, a extension on a point Justin made about interest rates and, and mm -hmm. um, you know, Justin talked about, we all do these underwriting models and the underwriting models are a function of, you know, the cash flows over a period of time and what you can pay for them today is, high, is, a fun, is highly dependent on what the interest rate is for the money that you borrow to buy some of these assets. And as interest rates have gone up, we still have to um, generate the same equity returns. So the ultimate price that we can uh, pay for those businesses goes down. And that's just simple math. Um, on, on top of that, I, I would say when risk is more prominent in the market, um, capital allocators generally are more fearful. And so because there's less supply of capital, there's opportunities for people that do have conviction to put capital to work, to buy businesses at, at the most a fair price, but usually um, you know, for, for a price that you can, you can derive a lot of value from. And so we've been value-centric investors for decades. Um, we've made some of our best investments during periods of market dislocation. We've made some of our worst investments during those periods too. So like, <laughs> don't all, we don't get it right all the time. Um, but for the most part, you know, I, I think these types of uh, environments are really conducive to putting capital to work. And so, the things that we're focusing on is trying to find the absolute best businesses we can buy today in scale that we think have uh, advantages that will grow over time. And, and certainly in periods where, where there is dislocation, 
generally speaking, businesses that are the strongest in their end markets will do the best if you can continue to invest capital in them. And so that whatever advantage they have should grow over that period of time. And so, the, so that's, that's what we're focusing on. Um, one particular area of interest for us now is, you know, we've talked a little bit about supply chain and supply chain is kind of one of the themes. And you know, this is where we have the view that um, the inflationary pressures are more systemic when it comes to the supply chain disruption. And, and our view is that supply chains globally are gonna change over the next five, 10, 15 years. And there's gonna be opportunities as uh, people wanna diversify and de-risk their supply chains from being so solely focused on you know, the absolute lowest cost sole source supplier to having a little bit more flexibility. And so we're looking at opportunities that are gonna take advantage of that. So you're talking specifically around nearshoring or reshoring opportunities, just like mm -hmm. logistics companies? Well, all, all, all elements of, all elements of, of, that. of uh, businesses that are impacted by, by that concept. No, can, I, can I add to that if you yeah, want? Yeah, like, yeah. I think the scorecard from people who are raising money, sellers, entrepreneurs, whether they're selling all of it or some of it has changed. It feels like 18 months ago, you were being evaluated purely on price, right? And people were just trying to get what they could out the door. And it took courage to be patient in those environments because it felt asymmetric the wrong way. Mm -hmm. And now the scorecard, in my opinion, is the scorecard is changing. Things like certainty of close, uh, approach on partnership, um, the ability to kind of demonstrate you can add value to their goals and their ambitions by applying resources and the strength of your firm is much more meaningful than it used to be. And for firms that are investing in themselves to be able to provide that offering, it feels like a very opportunistic time to be able to capitalize on that. Because many of us in this room who are private equity centric are making investments in our own firms to make ourselves better partners. And it feels to a degree like the world is starting to acknowledge that there's value in that. But 18 months ago, if I'm being totally honest, it didn't feel like that. It felt the opposite of that. It felt transactional in every sense of the word. So for me, like deploying capital now, not just from a capital allocation perspective, but from a just from a feeling perspective, feels like what we're doing is being valued more than being commoditized. Okay, can you elaborate a little bit more on that? So yeah. 18 months ago, um, companies were... It wasn't, it wasn't atypical to hear 18 months ago a process being run with an unrealistic timeline on close with 100 parties interested and 20, I'm like, I don't think I'm making this up for anyone in this room, 25 EOIs, seven parties going to the next round, bids due in a very short period of time. And like, just think of the environment that creates when you're partnering with someone. Like bidding on a house in Toronto. Bidding on a house in Toronto. <laughs> and you start waiving conditions and you regret it. And I think the reality is, is like, you know, you have to walk away from those transactions. But that was the landscape you were forced to play in, mm -hmm. right? And so in that environment, you have two options. You can play or not play. Uh, and to not play when you're deploying capital is also a challenge. It takes courage, though, because our businesses are evaluated typically on a three to seven year period. Mm -hmm. We're constantly proving what we can do every five years, right? You mentioned David is fundraising, Thekla is fundraising. They're being evaluated on their capabilities. So it really matters, uh, in my opinion now, to be able to be valued on something more than just the price you're willing to pay or the speed at which you're willing to run. I think it sets up better for the entrepreneurs as well. Okay. So what are they, just to kind of, since we're on this topic, what would you say that you're offering and what are they looking for? I think, if it's not yeah, just money. I think they're looking for partnership. Mm -hmm. And I think the simplest way to articulate partnership is how you show up. I mean, I can, I can give you a bunch of words that will demonstrate that, but at the end of the day, we always say it's not just showing up, it's how you show up. 
is showing up thoughtfully from the beginning of the process to demonstrate that you know their sector, you understand their constraints, their friction points, how you're gonna show up in times when it's challenging, how you have capital to support them when those opportunities present themselves that's gonna allow them to scale and transform their businesses. So I, as much as I would love to put that on a slide, it's also just a feeling you get when you meet people. And it's nice when the other side of the table feels that and values that. It's a bit of a different look for PE, wouldn't you say? I mean, it's... I mean, well, but we, I, th I think it's also, I mean, showing them that you can help. Like right. it's more, it's capital, but it's also expertise. That, that, you know, there are things that they need to do as a company to get to the next level and that you have the expertise and the experience to actually do that. You've, you've seen that movie before. You can bring executives to bear. You have those capabilities in-house. I think it's having that package where, where it matters. And I agree with Justin, it definitely matters more today than it did you know, two years ago. Um, but for sure, I think that, you know, if they're, especially if they're rolling a stake in, in the sort of in the entity going forward, it's also demonstrating that that's a good investment for them. And, you know, maybe I'll just add one point. I hear a lot of entrepreneurs that we meet, whether they're selling 100% or not, one of the things they really care about is their employee base. Is their employee base. Their employees. How their employees are going to be treated after the fact, who they're selling to, the plans you have for the business. Those things matter, and it's nice to have the time and processes now to articulate those plans. Didn't always feel like you could do that in a very condensed window uh, because the market was chasing a transaction. Mm -hmm. Thecla, um, just to follow up, when you're looking at uh, deals, I'm, I'm curious how, you know, the way conditions have changed. Have you changed the way you diligence now when you're looking at opportunities? Uh, you know, yes and no, I would say. I mean, you know, Andrew and I came from a, a firm that had a pretty rigorous and robust, you know, diligence process, and so that's very much imbued in, in, in how we approach everything. I think the biggest challenge is, you know, what is the run rate of the business and how do you actually forecast what's going to happen with the business when you look back and you have all the things that we've talked about. You have supply chain disruption, like huge run-ups in costs, you know, labor shortages, et cetera. So it puts a lot of tension on the ability. And so, you know, as a, you know, so you're forced to sort of look at, you know, more deeply what those sort of underlying drivers are as well as you know, continually updating the numbers as you're sort of moving through the process to make sure that you're seeing sort of the most current information to continually validate you know, what it is that you're trying to dig into. David, in terms of value creation, um, where do you see um, when, you're, when you're looking at companies or when you look at your portfolio companies, the greatest areas, the gaps, as well as the, the opportunities there for, ad, for adding value when you're looking? It's a, it's a really wide variety yeah. depending on the, the, the business. Um, and each one of my operating partners is here. He, he'd be a much better person to answer this question than I am. But um, look, I, I, I would say um, one of the things we like to do is we, we like to find businesses that are fundamentally very, very sound, but have gone through some sort of turmoil where um, the management team has either changed the strategy or the, the current strategy doesn't fit the market context, where we can go in, and we've done this um, many, many times, we can go in, develop a value creation plan, which is really about refocusing the strategy, making sure the, the product and pricing is appropriate mm -hmm. and driving cost efficiency through the business. And that's an A to Z from you know, SG&A 
supply chain, production, procurement, um, and driving as much change as we can based on our experience um, as the business will allow. And so you've got to scale this to the capabilities of the business. Sometimes that means replacing parts of the management team um, if, if they're not change agents themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were talking about, about this a little bit at, at, uh, at lunch is, you know, there is a real partnership mentality and you spend a lot of time with these people and it matters that you have intellectual alignment on what needs to be done with the business. And if you don't have that alignment, it doesn't matter how smart you are, or how hard you work, it's not gonna go anywhere. Um, and so those are some of the things right. that we're, we're focusing on. And, and in addition to, I mean, your strategy ops, finding kind of uh, cost efficiencies, are there specific areas such as, whether it's digital, uh, ESG, I have a question here from the audience around talent um, and whether the perception of cha- talent has changed as well in terms of value and... I, I don't think the perception has changed. It's the most important thing. If you, get the, if you get the management team decision wrong, it creates immeasurable problems. And if you get the management team right, they fix, pro- they fix their own problems and create solutions that you don't think of. And so, so Justin was talking about this, this partnership. It's the most important thing. And one of the things I see often is even if you meet the most competent management teams who have a great track record, uh, the amount of work that they have to take on when you start to put in different value creation initiatives, mm-hmm. it's not like many of them haven't thought about this themselves, but they're working on the business. And we see this often with transactions. We work on a transaction, we close it, everyone's excited, and then guess what? Everyone is exhausted. And on top of that, they have like a new value creation plan they have to put in place. So one of the things we always work on is just an acknowledgement of the resource deficiency that exists, which isn't necessarily challenging their competency. Mm-hmm. It's just the reality of the job. Because most of the time, the investment team takes a break. But the CFO, for example, which is where we often see the most drain, just went through a bunch of quality of earnings, often with multiple bidders. They have to be the CEO of the business, typically have a new debt facility in place. They're trying to manage that. And now they have a bunch of value creation initiatives where they're somehow touching it. There's just so many hours in the day. One of the things we find management teams appreciate the most is when we're prepared to put our own resources in to help solve that problem uh, because the feeling of that is overwhelming. I think we would all feel that if you just did a deal for six months and the next day you have a one-year plan in front of you. Mm -hmm. It's an overwhelming task. It's our job to manage that with them. I think that also builds trust and demonstrates partnership. I think having focus around that too, and, you know, it's a bit of recognizing capacity. You know, we're we're looking in the lower mid market, and so it would be a much thinner team uh, that we would be relying on. You know, obviously we'd be looking to augment it, but really having a very f- focused view on like what are the two or three things that really need to get accomplished to sort of drive the outcome and, and the investment thesis and. And then again, you know, aligning the resources, whether they're internal or external, and having a sort of a cadence and a plan that that team can ingest. I mean, I have the unusual, I guess, experience of having actually been an operating partner for a number of years. So I ran one of Birchill's portfolio companies for four years through a transformation. And it was fascinating, actually, to be sitting on the other side of myself, I guess, in a way, (laughs) and looking at sort of, you know, all the unintended consequences of conversations that we had had or initiatives that we had started, and then kind of resetting the table 
and then honestly being a bit savage with my virtual partners saying like, yeah, we're not doing that. <laughs> like, that's really interesting. No, like yeah. absolutely not. We're doing these three things and that's all we're doing. And, you know, happy to talk about it, but this is what we have the capacity to do and do well and complete. Because that's the issue that you have is your management teams are, they want to be agreeable, they're excited, whatever, they say yes to everything and then they finish nothing. And then you're standing looking at each other 12 months later wondering why things haven't kind of worked out according to plan. Mm. So I think it's really important. One of my former partners, this, this guy's been retired for 10 years now and he was a little bit pedantic, but he used to always say, guys, we can do anything, but we can't do everything. Mm. So you gotta pick three things and those are the only three things we're gonna focus on until they're done. And then when we're done those three things, we'll pick three more and that's it. But given, I mean, and to your point, there's always uncertainty. There's always a certain degree of something's going on in the world. But would you say, I mean, is it that there is something right now that companies, one or two things that companies really need to be thinking about, given the degree of, of disruption we're seeing across many different vectors, right? I mean, is it the ability to be agile? Is it really focusing on costs? Is it, I mean, I'm just curious if you would have a piece of advice there. David, or any of you, actually. I think it depends, yeah. honestly. Like, it really depends on the company and what the thesis is would be my view, but I don't know. <laughs> I'll say this because I don't know anything about it, but um, <clears throat> one of the biggest things, I think, is, um, is AI yes. and the That's role AI is going to play yeah. in transitioning our economy to something new. Now, that, that, that being said, um, there might not be a perfect precedent for this, but like the um, electricity revolution, the industrial revolution, um, the advent of uh, more efficient manufacturing methodologies, the internet, like we've gone through massive, massive, massive changes over relatively short periods of time. And the world's always come out generally a much better place. Um, and I'm optimistic that, you know, that creative intellectual minds behind AI will figure out how to make the world a much better place. And I think for businesses, it's going to drive more efficiency and more opportunity for, for them. So are you saying that regardless of your sector, it's something you should be thinking about in some I, I think so. I think it's going to be that pervasive. Well, it already exists in every day. You know, yeah. all the things... Um, my husband works at Meta, and I have count. He has countless conversations about people being convinced that it's listening through to their phone. Like, because some ad comes up on Instagram, it's not listening. It's AI. Like, it basically is putting together a bunch of different data points and your behavior and your friend's behavior and your friend's friend's behavior and serving you up stuff. Sometimes that's alarming, but it's, you know, generally consistent with what you're interested in. Like, so I think it's touching us in a lot more ways than I think yeah. any of us fully appreciate. Yeah, you know, one of the things we try to do, I, I agree completely, is um, people tend to flock to problems, right? And so if you're dealing with a supply chain issue, it tends to be the thing you're focused on. And we're trying to get our management teams to think about the opportunity cost of just constantly solving problems, right? You tend, there's that kind of statement of working in the business versus working on the business and worrying about things like AI is working on the business, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, for us, I, I can't speak to whether it's you know cutting costs or supply chain or interest rates at the moment for each business is so bespoke, but we're trying to get people outside of the business so that they can look up a little bit. Because uh, if anything, I think the one constraint we're seeing right now is time, uh, people's time, people's capacity. They're psychologically tired in certain circumstances. There's a lot going on. There's a lot that we're all digesting. 
So trying to free up those resources is, I think, a worthwhile investment. I've seen businesses put money aside to actually create task force teams around learning about AI and how it may affect their businesses and industries that if I told you about them, you would think that that's very forward thinking. So it just shows you uh, working in versus working outside is a big difference. Mm. There, and, and sorry, I, I think that Justin just highlighted one of the biggest benefits of the private equity business model and governance structure is when it works really well and you have that partnership, you have a thought partner that's not working day to day in the business, but should be thinking day to day about the business. Mm -hmm. And usually you can create really creative conversations around what's next for the business and what's five and 10 years down the road that sometimes it's harder for management to teams to see every day because they're focusing on solving problems and, and making the next sale. Um, and I think it's one of the biggest benefits that the private equity um, governance model creates. Well, that was kind of one of my follow-up questions is why would, why would a company want to sell now, right? Because the valuations are lower and there is a gap between you know, sellers and buyers these days that apparently still hasn't really adjusted. So what would the benefit? I mean, you've mentioned one, David, but I, you know, the valuations are gonna be lower. I think it depends on what they're, they're selling. It's, some people are just dealing with succession. You know, they've hit a point, they, they need help. And we don't always buy control of a company. We're often buying 30 to 70%. So most of the time, people are trying to capitalize on an opportunity because just as you said, valuations are lower. They might have an impressive platform. They see potential merger and acquisition opportunities in their space, and so they're looking for a capital partner to do that. But I find, I, I don't know what Thekla and David would say, but there's just so many reasons Often it's just personal, I find. People have been building this business for 25 years and they want to move on, right? Or they've hit a point in their life that they have certain personal matters they have to deal with. So it's not, it's really hard to time the market perfectly to an exit. I wish life worked that way. It just doesn't. Well, I also think too, I mean, you know, we've had a bunch of disruption, but let's say for a moment you're an entrepreneur who was thinking that they wanted to sell their business in 2020. Like a lot's happened in that period of time. You know, they, they probably didn't engage in the process. So it's been a hard road, I think, for, for entrepreneurs from a risk perspective, from just sort of managing through that, that tumultuous period. And multiples are still going down. So there's also no guarantee that waiting is necessarily gonna reward you. And so again, I think if you're if you're rolling and you have the right partner and there's a strategy where that person is gonna help you from a value creation perspective, either you know, thinking about bigger ideas or you know, bringing resources to bear to help you execute on things, then you know, there'll be a step function increase in terms of the value of that business and that remaining stake you know, should, could be worth more than the stake that you initially sold. And so you know, good businesses, there's always a market for them and, and you, know, you, you do see in the data that I think the multiples have gone down more than the data implies because the deals that are getting done are the good deals. The, the marginal deals that were getting done two years ago at pretty fulsome values are, either aren't getting done or they're not coming to market. Or there's structural protections in those deals. Correct. Yeah. That make the multiples seem like something but might end up being something else depending yeah, on how that company sure. performs. So I think generally people are buying insurance hmm. in the market today. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about um, just sectors. We mentioned nearshoring and, and reshoring opportunities. Um, any particular 
business sectors that are of interest right now. Is, is tech still a place to be? Well, look, uh, tech's really interesting. I, w I would bifurcate tech into two big buckets. I would say there's high growth tech that has had dramatic changes in valuation, principally because we're cash flow investors, but the cash flow that those businesses are gonna generate is still 10 or 15 years down the road. So those businesses, because interest rates have come up, discount rates have come up, the valuations have been dramatically uh, different, and growth now is a lot more expensive than it was 12 months ago. So within that bucket, I'd say there's, it's, uh, the valuations have come way down. I have no idea whether or not they're still fair value because those, those businesses I think are difficult to value generally. On the other end of the spectrum, there's technology businesses or technology-enabled businesses that generate cash today and have um, proven markets um, that are generally stable. Those businesses are, can be amazing businesses. Um, we, we bought a business last year that provides mission-critical software to automotive dealerships in the US, and it's a great business. And they, they have a really high market share. It's very, very sticky. It's hard for the auto dealers to change the software out. I think that's gonna be a great business. And B2B enterprise care. software is always a- Pardon me? B2B enterprise software is always a, yeah. Can be, yeah. yeah. Or can be, yeah, okay, Jacqueline. Well, we're focused on services, so as a fund, we've got a bit of a narrow focus, so lower middle market uh, services businesses in Canada. I mean, some of the opportunities that we're spending the most time on are in business and industrial services. Um, again, we're cash flow investors, so service businesses in general are high free cash flow business, low, low CapEx. Um, so you know, we're excited about the sector. We're seeing lots of opportunities, so. What's an example of the well, one of the you know one of the transactions that we're working on now is a industrial fastener distributor. Doesn't sound very sexy, but it's a, <laughs> it's a pretty it's a pretty sexy business. Yeah. It's, uh, it's um, you, you know say so. incredibly <laughs> high margins. You know, great team, lots of growth. It's an industry that is a is a is a high growth industry. If you just imagine for a moment, like the skew proliferation in, in fasteners, whether it's alloys. Threads. These are all things I've recently learned. Threads, you know, bolts, what have you. I mean, no one party, even somebody like a Fastenal, is able to sort of have all that inventory in hand. And believe me, they have a lot of inventory on hand. And so it just creates all these sort of dislocations, especially if they're being applied into a project where it's mission critical. Um, or, you know, or they have very expensive resources that are on site that are sort of working their way through and they need everything on site in order to complete the job. So it's a, it's a, it's a gem, hmm. I'm excited about okay. it. And, and Justin, how about you? Oh, we're a lot like Thecla, I would say. Um, but look, I would, if I step back for a second, we're more, more profile hunters, and we tend to find that the profiles we like, which are all the characteristics that Thecla and David mentioned, lend themselves to certain industries. We tend to play mostly in business services and healthcare. We find that's where we like the profile and can add the most value, and it marries well with the way we invest and how we like to deploy capital after the initial transaction. Um, but I'll tell you, like, there's also an opportunistic arm that has to exist, because sometimes to be an expert on all those sectors is, is very tough. Something comes up where there's just a great match in terms of it hits our profile, probably wouldn't hit our radar if we were doing a sector screen, but it's got a great management team, it's got great dynamics, the shareholder dynamics makes sense for us to play. We're willing to do that as well. Um, the one thing we are prepared to stretch on is 
to me, there's always a cost to a business. You either have a working capital cost, you have a human cost, or you have a cap actual capital equipment cost or a capex cost. And in our view, one isn't necessarily always better than the other, right? It's about how you price and understand those risks and how you play with them. And that affords us to stretch outside sometimes of the traditional private equity uh, perfect service business, uh, where we think you can find good value beside really good partners, because those spaces are slightly less competed, because on a headline basis, it might sound a little um, concerning, right? Because there's a capex uh, mm -hmm. component to it. But we found we're able to approach that intelligently, and it's rewarded us in the past. So it's it's the opportunistic arm of our private equity strategy. And how are you? How do you source? But how is, has it changed yeah. at all? And um, well, sourcing is super hard. Um, we have a whole dedicated team to it, uh, and I know some of my uh, peers in this room have the same thing, but. Uh, we have a four-person team that gets up every day, worried about maintaining all of our intermediary relationships, hunting in the sectors where we've done our research and think there's opportunities and entrepreneurs we can partner with. And we try to do a mix of both auction and proprietary deals. And in this moment where the auction market tends to be a little slower, those proprietary deals are very valuable. So for us, it's, it's a mix of making sure we have enough proprietary to keep going, but that we recognize the importance and strength of the auction market. I would say, it is hard to uh, be an investment professional, get stuck in a deal, and originate while you're doing that so that when you're done your deal, you're back to the next transaction. We just found that that's a skill set that's better managed for us if we divide it. Hmm. I'm not saying that's for everyone, uh, but for us, the origination team gets up every day and that's all they do. Uh, and it's a vocation and it's a tremendous amount of work, so we made that investment. I think that allows us to make sure we don't have any uh, lumpiness to our business, which is something we used to experience. We would be working on a transaction, get really excited, close the transaction, and all of the pipeline you were building has somehow gone away. Mm -hmm. And so that was our solution to that, that friction point. Mm -hmm. uh, I have a question from the audience, um, and I think I'll direct it at David. Um, <laughs> um, given the growing activity across African markets, what is your approach to Africa? Do you have any interest? Or uh, we operate in 30-ish countries around the world. Not one of them is in Africa. Um, for, our, for our business, there's kind of three, three major tenets that have to be true for us to want to invest in a country. One is, is the economy has to be large enough from a GDP perspective for it to make sense. There's maybe one in Africa that, that would hit that criteria. The second is the, the rule of law has to be really well developed. Um, and the third is the respect for capital has to be unwavering. So you're not going to get any of your assets expropriated. Um, I'm not sure that's true everywhere in Africa. And we've, we've institutionally made the decision that it's not the right place for us for now. That might change over time. Um, but, but generally, we're focused on other larger economies and markets. OK. Um, as we wrap up, I think what I'd like to do is just to kind of uh, maybe ask each of you uh, the following question, which is kind of what kind of is maybe keeping you up a little at night these days in terms of when you look out over the horizon, and what are you most excited about? David, I'll start with you. Well, I have three little kids. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Those aside, we all assume <laughs> children. <laughs> That's what keeps crazy. me up yeah, at night. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Look, there's, uh, there's, there's lots of uh, turmoil in markets right now, and uh, what's keeping me up at night is just making sure that our existing operating businesses are being as, as thoughtful and forward-looking as they can be 
around what's next in their market you, to either take advantage of opportunities as some of our competitors are struggling with working capital issues, whatever it is, and, uh, and making sure that we're best positioned to, to react. And but it's mostly my kids. It's mostly kids. <laughs> and what are you most excited about in terms of opportunities in this market? Um, look, I, I, I just think uh, we've built a great team. And, um, and our team is continually focused on making our businesses better. And I think we're getting better at that every day. And I'm excited about the opportunity to continue to do that with our team. Thecla. Well, I have the benefit of not having a current portfolio, so I think that gives me a lot better I sleep better at night, I guess, as a result, so, and a lot more freedom to focus on uh, new opportunities, and so that's what I'm excited about, is, you know, I'm excited about the part of the market that we're in. I mean, we're, we're a new group. We're six people, five of whom are here with me today, and uh, so I think we're, we're just kind of raring to go, so. And, and you know you're, you're, you're starting this is at an interesting time. So for you when you yes when thank you, you yes well <laughs> I actually just started my own business too so I you know I can, I can sympathize. Um, but all things considered, when you you know you're looking at a potential pipeline, you you actually see lots of opportunity. Then. I think now is the time to invest, and fortunately we've got the ability to be 100% focused on that, I mean, as well as building the team and, and so on. So I, I think that's a gift, for sure. Yeah, I would say for me, of course, the portfolio, but I think for, from my perspective, it's making sure the portfolio company has the resources they need and are securing the talent they need because there still is some talent movement happening for different reasons than happened a couple of years ago. Uh, so from that perspective, I'm just making sure we're properly planning for those portfolio companies. That's what would keep me up at night. It's not an easy game. What they are chasing and how they grow changes all the time. Uh, but look, I'm really optimistic in the sense that I think now isn't the time just about getting a great deal. I think there's a chance to sell yourself more appropriately, like I mentioned earlier, and that is a welcomed change in my opinion. So that's the most optimistic part to me. And with the five plus year hold on investments, gives us a chance to really demonstrate value outside of just a very short uh, auction window. So that's the most exciting part to me. Okay, great. Well, thank you all very much. Appreciate it. David, uh, Thekla, Justin, thank you so much for your uh, insights into, into uh, I guess, behind the curtain, as we said, uh, into what's happening in private equity today. I think we all took a lot away from it. I, I took away three things of my own. Um, uh, first and foremost, uh, the notion of back to basics and a focus on, on great businesses with strong end market performance. That is, that's a timeless comment. Um, second, the, the, new, the notion that the new PE scorecard should emphasize partnership, not just the what, but the how we show up, um, as well as bringing value beyond capital. Um, capital is more expensive now, but uh, I think supporting a portfolio company's business strategy moving forward is probably even more so. Um, and then third, I, I think we had a really nice discussion on this. Focus is the new smart. Um, so to work on the to work on the business rather than just in the business is what how we get uh, kind of the, these engines to, to the next level. So thank you so much to each of you. Again, you are leaders in the industry and um, very inspiring and educational comments for us today. 
And Andrea, just before we close, Andrea, to you, thank you again for moderating such a fantastic conversation. As always, your deafness and knowledge of the market um, is, is obviously on display for everyone to benefit from. Uh, members and guests, before we close, let me tell you about a few of our upcoming in-person events. On Wednesday, May 24th, we will be discussing the future of long-term care in Ontario with the Honourable Paul Calandra and a stellar panel of healthcare CEOs. And on Monday, May 29th, we welcome the CEO of BCE in Bell Canada, Miracle Bibich, to this podium. And finally, on Tuesday, May 30th, in the evening, we will look forward to hearing from Michael McCain, CEO and Executive Chair of Maple Leaf Foods, to discuss the future of food. Uh, I invite all of you to visit us at CanadianClub.org. You'll find more information about those events as well as others, membership options and ticket options. Once again, I'd like to order, um, like to offer a round of thanks to our event sponsor today, PwC, for making this conversation possible. Thank you everyone for joining us today. I look forward to seeing you again very, very soon. Thank you.